Hey, humans out there, I need your help. Humans Now and Then is in the running for a People's Choice Podcast Award under the Society category. If you love Humans Now and Then, please vote at podcastawards.com. That's podcastawards.com. Also, follow Humans Now and Then on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to be one of the first to learn more about the upcoming Season 2. I'll be sharing some exciting announcements soon, and you do not want to miss it. Let's dive into Episode 23 of Humans Now and Then. In the age of COVID, many people discuss the opportunity for a new normal. However, how does a savvy organization shape that new normal? In this episode, I speak to Lori Silverman, futurist, business storyteller, and the founder of Partners for Progress, about data-driven decision-making and the importance of applying strategic thinking in order to determine a path toward the future. So we need these methods of strategic thinking to help us go into the future and see patterns. But where everyone is focused right now is on what I call the now and the next step. What they're not focused on is the step after next. Lori helps firms strategize about their future, navigate messy, complex changes, make smarter decisions using data, and influence through story. Since 1991, she's worked across 25 industries, has been a keynote speaker at over 90 events, is the author of five books, and has inspired thousands to take action. So, ready to dive into how strategic thinking and business storytelling can help you shape the future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Lori Silverman, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I'm always excited to talk to you because we always have such great conversations, honest conversations, and always take something amazing out of those conversations as well. So, um, but I want to let the listeners in a little bit more about about you. So why don't you share more about who Lori is to our listeners? Um, Well, you know, um, who Lori is actually became known to me last summer. (laughs) I was um, asked by a colleague to do some videos about my background, and I had an epiphany during one of the tapings. And that was that if you look at the entirety of my career, which goes back over about 40 some years, um, that there's something that really stands out to me. And that is three times over my career, I've done the following. I've taken topics that don't register on Google Trends and I help to bring them to the forefront. I don't actually make them mainstream because some of the topics still aren't mainstream, but I happen to, you know, just, I have this knack for seeing gaps in what's going on and saying, is that something that would benefit from my involvement? So the first time I did it was in the total quality industry. Um, After about 10 years of working in the industry as a consultant, I wrote a book with a colleague about the future of quality, and my former husband wrote a fable for us, and he called it How the Q Lost Its Tail, From Total Quality Management to Total Organizational Management, and that framework today still guides my practice. And then a couple years later, I was helping two women put together a book proposal for a book of stories for trainers, and one of the authors left the project when the initial contract came through. And that book, Stories Trainers Tell, turned into, well, even until today, 
three books, the largest action research study in the world relative to business storytelling. And I'm just starting to actually do more presentations on that. Again, people are like, wow, where have you been? <laughs> like I've, I've been here, <laughs> you know, you need to find me. And then the work that I'm doing today, which I've affectionately given the name uh, data literacy 2.0. It's an umbrella term that encompasses things around collaborative data-informed decision-making, data storytelling 2.0, because I think that a lot of the materials that are coming out in that area aren't, um, they don't recognize the work that's been done in business storytelling or the brain research. And then there's a lot of other pieces, the, the data culture piece, the enterprise core competence and so on. So I'm starting to blaze new trails again. And I, I really believe it's this last piece. I mean, all of these form my legacy, but it's really this last piece that um, brings together everything I've ever done in my whole career. So I'm, I feel really blessed that my legacy has found me. That's amazing. What a great story. And I, I love the fact that it's kind of built up, built you up to the place you're at today. I can definitely highly relate to kind of putting, weaving together your story in a way that puts you in this place today that you feel like that's the place you belong. So that's fantastic. Um, I think one of the interesting things is when you talk about like the data storytelling, you don't want to make the mistake that I made, listeners. I made this mistake uh, before we started recording here on this conversation that uh, you know, Lori's about data. And she's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not about data. I'm about decisions. And so why don't we talk a little bit about that kind of mis misperception? Like, what is it about, especially maybe this time, this day and time, now that we're dealing with significant disruption, decision making is very important. And some of those decisions will have to come quickly and sometimes with less information. So what would be your advice in relation to decision-making during highly disrupted times? Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of ideas and then you tell me which direction you'd like to go. Sure. Um, what I tell people is data in and of itself is useless. There, it has, it holds no value. Um, you know, people talk about the difference between um, monitoring and reporting and decision-making, but quite frankly to me, if you're only monitoring and reporting, you're missing out on that all of the data that you collect has to be for decisions. Otherwise, it doesn't do any good to sit there. And we've learned this right now. So I remember being at a conference in November of 2018, and there were a lot of speakers talking about creating data marketplaces, which is how do we take all the data in the organization, make certain it's clean, and put it into a repository so anytime someone needs it, they can grab it. Well, guess what? All that data today is suspect, and most of it's useless. You know, there was a day that happened, but now if you're a small business, that day was whatever day in your community shelter at home happened. But if you're a global entity, such as Alibaba or Walmart or Amazon, though there were multiple days like that, right? And all the data you had in your historical databases or in your machine learning models, it took anomalies out. And right now, all we have are anomalies. And so how can you forecast from historical data? You can't. But yet, I was on a webinar a couple of weeks ago with four leaders in the analytics industry. One was in the grocery store business. And they're like, yeah, we're still trying with our business leaders to use the old data to tell them what's going to happen. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, this is, this is crazy. You know, or someone the other day said, yeah, you know, on one of my charts, one of my analytic charts, I thought, wow, I should note the day that things changed for our business and start to write on the chart what's different. And my, my thought was, 
We've been doing that for years in statistical process control, SPC. What are you telling me about? Of course you would note those shifts. Um, or even this morning, I was looking at some data. You're going to love this. It was on COVID. And is shutting down or is the reopening of cities in the U.S. working? And I almost fell off my chair when <laughs> the report said, well, we went back 14 days and we took one seven-day period. And then we compared it to the last seven-day period to see if there was a shift. And I'm like, that's not the way I would be doing it. I mean, it's, it's like you can't do compare contrast that way. And they even said, well, to smooth out the data. Why are we smoothing out the data? We don't want to smooth out the anomalies, folks. What we're trying to do is we're trying to learn from the data. You need to plot it the way it's coming in. So I, I have been focused for the last, oh, my gosh, well, at, at least since I was 30 years old, and I'm not 30 anymore, on decision-making. But it's only been in the last, like, five, six years that it's really come back full circle into my life. Um, and what I say to people is this, you know, if you look at a business at a, as a whole, I don't care if it's a nonprofit, governmental agency, for-profit, big or small makes no difference. There are two questions that we really need to pay attention to. And that is, what's the cost outside of innovation of making a wrong decision? And to your point, the cost is really high right now. And the second question is, even if we make a right decision, what's the cost of not fully implementing it? Because if we can't implement it, and today, if we cannot implement it fast, then we've got another issue because we're not able to iterate fast enough. So to me, those those are the things we need to start um, talking about. And and along with that, I think where my love is, and I'm hoping, I this is my dream, okay? My dream is that organizations will move in this direction. I want them to embrace, just like they've embraced for everything else in life, you know, a agile method for doing things or waterfall for project management or a combination hybrid model for those things. I want them to start to embrace a robust step-by-step -step process for collaborative data-informed decision-making. Because until we do that, until we teach that to everyone, I don't care how much data you throw at people, if they are not empowered to make decisions and if they're not using the same steps to go about making the decisions, how in the heck can they collaborate and how can they do it fast and smarter? Right. So, so many interesting parallels there too. When you think about um, the rapid pace of change, right? So businesses are moving very fast. People are moving very fast. And as I'm sure you've seen, if you try to link up, you know, strategic direction to strategic execution, uh, there's an age old gap that ends up kind of widening, even I think in this current circumstance, you've got companies at different ends of the spectrum on where they fit in relation to executing the strategy they envisioned maybe last fall or whatever. Now getting into this highly disrupted world, the whole game has changed. Some companies go down the path that we're going to stay down the course that we wrote out last year. Other companies finding ways to become more maybe nimble and kind of react and adjust course as needed. So what's your thought around that? What can companies do to help kind of close that gap between strategy and execution or even just completely change their direction if, if necessary? Well, what they're all forgetting to do is something that no one talks about. I actually teach a graduate class on that, and that is strategic thinking. So strategic thinking, if you were to draw a picture on a piece of paper, in the center of a picture, I would first draw like a big square, a big circle. But in the center of it, I'd put strategic thinking. And then emanating out of strategic thinking are things like visioning, 
or emanating out of strategic thinking is um, strategy formulation or emanating out of it is strategic planning or strategic execution. And you cannot do those four things well unless you're doing strategic thinking. So what's happened today is the following. And I'm going to use the phrase that McKinsey uses. They talk about the next normal, not the new normal, the next normal. Because what we have known forever and ever, for those of us who are strategists and futurists, and that's an area I've worked in for a long time, is that the world has always been complex. It's always been complicated. It's always been volatile. It's always been uncertain, right? So we need these methods of strategic thinking to help us go into the future and see patterns. But where everyone is focused right now is on what I call the now and the next step. What they're not focused on is the step after next. And the step after next, now for some companies, they might say, well, now is today, next step is tomorrow, step after next is like a week from now. And I'm like, ooh, not far enough out. Not far enough out, because that's a very myopic view of the world. So with organizations that I've worked with, and even on large programs, we've done this, like when the programs have gotten stuck and I've been brought in to help them, is I've said, let's stop, let's take just a brief time out and let's talk about 10 years in the future, like the, for now it'd be like the year 2030. Let's understand life in 2030 and then look at the implications back to what you're doing today and build that in. That's what we call foresight versus forecasting. You cannot forecast the future, you just can't because you'll never see what the future is going to look like in its totality. But if I stand in the future, 2030, or some of my clients are looking at 2040, now they're not saying, well, here's one world. They're saying here are multiple realities that could play out, right? Here are multiple possibilities, multiple probabilities. But then they can backcast toward today and say, what are the implications to today? And marry that data with what they know today. So I think the dilemma that organizations have, think about this, because this is a huge dilemma. They can't forecast off of historical data, right? So all they've got is maybe data from what, the last month? And if they don't have any foresight data, what are they doing? They're drowning in the now. They're drowning in the now. They have no ability to kind of lift their head up. Now, what's interesting is, and I remember this date because I, I, I mentioned this in another program recently. On Friday, May 1st, I was... I had CNBC on in the background. When I work, it kind of drowns out like the noise. And I heard the CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue. His name, I think, is um, it's either Steve or Scott Metric. I can't remember what his first name is. Um, but he said exactly what I've just said, um, because the, the host said to him, how are you doing? You are in the department store industry. He said, no, we're not. No, we're not. He said, Neiman Marcus is in the department store industry. And oh, by the way, they're going bankrupt. <laughs> he, said, he said, we're owned by Hudson Bay, a real estate company. We are a real estate company that just happens to own some retailers. And guess what? We're focused on three phases. And I'm like, okay, what are those phases? He says, the now, which is the present moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. He says re-entry, which is his next step, right? The first re-entry for some companies was how do we immediately pivot? But now it's like reopening. He said, but we have not lost sight of the future. He said, and he said, because we've studied the future 
And we know that our future consumers want personalization and they want easy and they want customized and they want all of our channels to be fully integrated, which we've done. He said, we did all that and we paid off all our debt. So we have zero debt. And so when we reopen and people are like, oh my gosh, how are we going to serve people one by one? We already do that. There's no pivot needed to our business because we saw the future. And I think that's the dilemma that companies have is if you're so focused on the now in this immediate next step and you don't say, well, 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the future, what's the world going to be like? And how do I also, does it make sense to integrate it or blend it in with today's data, which I think we really have to do, right? I don't have a lot of the current data. I'm going to need this stuff from the future. And then I'm going to blend that with my intuition, which is a form of data, use my human reasoning, make decisions. But if I don't have that future piece, I am really, I'm kind of doomed. I'm kind of doomed. Um, I mean, if you want an example, I can give you one because there's one that kind of stands out to me if you're interested. Go for it. Sure. So um, Dan Burris, um, who's a technology futurist who I absolutely adore, um, he was talking on a recent a show of his about being called by the convenience store industry. And he is, Dan's the sort of person who likes He's very good at telling organizations kind of like, here's what you should do. That's not my approach. My approach is to be more process oriented because then you learn how to do this on your own. But the convenience store industry said to him when COVID began, we're about to lay off all of our employees. What do you suggest we do? And he said, don't. Don't. How do you become a necessity business? So that was their immediate pivot. Go from a convenience store from the now to the next step, which is be a convenience or go from being a convenience store to a necessity business. But I wanted him to say, what's the step after next? Because if I were the owner, let's say I owned um, 25 7-Elevens, right? I'm a large franchise owner. I don't even know if that's large, but I'm going to assume it is. Um, what's my step after next? Do I go back to being a convenience store? Do I stay a necessity store? Should I become something else? I mean, what, what should I become? And now the reason I say this, the reason I say this is because in when I was working for another consulting firm, uh, and this will take me back, I think I was like 32 or 33 years old, um, I was sent to Japan to study Deming prize-winning companies because I was involved in the quality movement. And I was there for a number of weeks, and one of the organizations that we went to visit was the um, Spa Hawaiian Resort. And as we were having dinner on the first night and listening to the general manager speak, he said, we used to be the Joe Ban Coal Mining Company. And I thought to myself, how did you move from being the Joe Ban Coal Mining Company to the Spa Hawaiian Resort? And he actually went on to explain that story. It's actually, I looked um, just recently on their website, all the steps are on there, not the backstory that I know, but the steps that are more public information. But the long and the short of it is, that they realized one day, and this was like, oh my gosh, it was like the 70s or 80s, that they did not have enough coal in the ground to employ their children's children. And that coal might not be the healthiest way to fuel a country. Mm. So they sat back because they had the luxury of time. That's what strategic thinking is all about, is having the, you know, the ability to think, not make decisions, just to think and reflect. And so they reflected on a number of different dynamics all the way through the company. 
You know, what, what is it about the land that we have? Well, it's rolling hills, it's not mountains. Um, what is it about mining that happens? Well, we, we often hit times hit hot springs. You know, what will the future consumers of Japan want? You know, what are they looking for now that they can't have? And they thought out that 100 years, and then they realized that they needed to bring Hawaii to Japan. And so I would be saying that to the convenience stores. You know, what is it that your future consumers need you to become? That's the step after next. But it's, but it's not like tomorrow. It's like 2025, 2030. But if you look out really, really far, what I've known with my clients is that you see things that you never thought you would identify. And for someone like me, I mean, I have clients in the early 2000s who identified pandemics and a series of pandemics. So none of this is a surprise to us. It's just that we couldn't predict the timing of it. Yeah, I've heard that more and more recently, that there are a lot of people that predicted this was coming and tried to push investments and focus in the area of uh, minimize the impact of what was going to be an inevitable, inevitable pandemic that would happen at some point. And now here we are. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, it's ironic. I, a couple of years ago, I was speaking on the same um, docket as the physician who cured the first Ebola patient in the U.S., and when he was finished, he heard me speak. And then when he was finished speaking, he came up to me and he said, I have something to tell you. He said, the sad part of the work that we're doing is that my mm -hmm. budget's already being cut back. And that's even before we knew what to do about Ebola. And he said, they just don't get it, Lori. I don't understand because what he was asking me was how does story factor in? How does business storytelling help us to influence change in the world? And unfortunately, you know, there are, a lot of people, you know, the, the adage is, oh, it's you know, like putting your, you're an ostrich and you put your head in the sand. I, I sometimes think it's worse than that. I mean, you just, it's not even that you put your head in the sand, right? You just choose. You choose to ignore. And, and, and that's actually an artifact of the human brain. Um, the human brain can't deal with anomalies unless you choose to be conscious of them. So the human brain likes to sh shut them down and not, you know, and, and not pay attention to it because that's too much effort to pay attention to them. But I think going back to your point from earlier and the things that I've just briefly talked about, we have got to start paying attention to the anomalies because if you don't, you're not even going to make the immediate pivots in the right direction. Yeah. And I think we'd almost, almost expect more anomalies as we move forward. Um, more things we learn, more things that continue to change, more things that we need to shift. So simply because, well, not even just the evolution of technology, but other issues that will become more pressing, such as the environment, um, such as even depending on what happens through the pandemic, uh, food availability in some areas. And so, and healthcare, healthcare, huge, right? So I think there's a lot of different things that companies in particular need to look at in relation to what the future looks like and the experience that people are going to have in that future beyond just the technology so that you can apply real solutions to those real problems people are going to have at some point, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. Well, that's if we want to solve wicked problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're, you're, all of the things you've stated are wicked problems because they, they don't have solutions and the solutions aren't obvious. And although some people would like us to believe the solutions are obvious, what we haven't done is we haven't 
uh, visually looked at the implications of taking particular courses of actions like in a systems thinking map to see what the unintended negative consequences would be of positive actions. Because there always are some. And so, you know, if, if you get, and we see this happening right now with the pandemic around the world, is we have different country leaders making different decisions. In the U.S., it's different state governors who are making different decisions. And the what they're actually doing is adding variability and complexity to what could be a much easier issue to look at. And I'm not saying easy because this issue is fraught with ethics in it, you know, and, and it's fraught with what I call um, um, what narrative do you want to tell yourself? You know, are you telling yourself the narrative of profitability and economics? And oh my gosh, we have to open up the the world again. Are you telling yourself the narrative around people and it's all about keeping people safe and so I'm going to stay home? Or are you telling yourself the narrative around the planet and around social responsibility and oh my gosh, look at this over Japan and in China, we can actually see blue skies again. Or there's a fourth narrative. Are you actually doing an aggregate of those three together, which is probably more of what reality needs to become. But, you know, we're not there. You know, we talk about this as a war. But, the, you know, and I'm like, well, is it a war against the people? Is it a war against the planet? Or is it a war against the economics? Like, what are you, what are you telling me? A war against COVID? You know, and, and that just clouds us being able to delineate what are, what are the things that we should be doing that might help us going forward. And that's, that's me talking as a strategist and a futurist. You know, and even as you're listening to this, you might say, well, wow, that sounds like such a complicated statement. Well, we're making it this way. We're making it this mm -hmm. way. It, you know, I would say that the challenge becomes is how do you find simplicity in complexity? How mm -hmm. do you find elegance in solutioning? That's what we need to be looking at going forward. But that only comes by standing in the future, which is um, an oxymoron for a lot of people. Yeah, it can be very difficult for folks to envision a, a, what the future might look like or their placement within that future. That takes some time, I think, to develop that level of kind of removing yourself from what you know and thinking about what might some other different context look like, you know, at some point, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Um, I want to float something by you, just like pass this by you, because a thought entered my head and we were talking through some of that strategic thinking. Some companies have found themselves in an advantageous position because of the pandemic. All of a sudden, they created a yeah. boom for themselves that they didn't expect, but they're not complaining. How do these businesses not fall into the trap of getting too complacent around their, um, their instant success and really think again forward into the future in potentially a post-pandemic world? How do they maintain some level of business structure or business success so they don't end up, I guess, crashing at some point? Well... All successful companies become mediocre and complacent. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I have worked with some of the most successful organizations because they've become complacent. And they're still making a ton of money. And they know that they're doomed going forward. But, you know, it's that that success blinds us to the need to take future action, especially today, because we don't want to embrace that we need to do continual improvement. We continually need to be looking forward, right? So that's one of the dilemmas. That's a mindset issue. So to me, it's that you have to, you have, it's all about stopping, taking a time out. Mm. And, and that time out can be done by anyone. I mean, I've, I've taught strategic thinking skills to administrative assistants 
because they can assist other people in this. I'm like, find articles about the future that relate to the topics that your business leader is having meetings with. You know, pull those articles, send it to them, read them or put a little note on stop that says, I thought this five page article would interest you. And here's the insight I got from it, you know, that I think stands out that might be advantageous. Or when you have meetings to say, would you like to talk about some of this just to start the conversation moving? It doesn't it doesn't have to be. a. I mean, I do uh, work where we, you know, co-create, meaning that we bring together groups of people. And you can do this online. It, I mean, the technology is there to bring together groups of people, not to talk about their opinions, because that's the other piece of all of this, Rebecca, that's really key here. If you bring people together to just to talk about their opinions, all you're doing is forecasting off of what they already mm. know. You really have to look at what are futurists saying about the future. People make they have their whole livelihoods around this. And there's people mm. who've looked out to the year 3000 since about 1985. So there's a lot written on all of these different years, 2030, 2035, 2040, 2050. I did a scan for a client 2040. I have three. I was funny. Um, we were had everything on a Google Drive, all the articles, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that we had collected. And they were organized based on the questions we asked in advance. We said if we had a crystal ball and we wanted to learn about economics, for example, what are the three or four questions we'd ask? Or if we wanted to learn about the social world, what are the three or four questions we could ask? And the, the Google Drive, someone deleted it. <laughs> I was the only one who printed out all the articles. And I don't know why I did that. But I have like I had like three bankers boxes filled with articles. And that was just to start. The rest I hadn't filed yet. And they're like, Lori, Lori, can you could you like Give those to someone and have them re-enter them into the system because we our, our redundancy didn't work either. I'm like, this is crazy. But so I visually look at this in my own house. You have to look at the articles regarding or the, re, the research that's being done around what are people saying about the future? They will not all agree, which is a okay. That's exactly what you want is diversity of thinking, right? And then what you have to do is you have to do two things as an organization. You have to say, how do we make sense out of them? And what meaning do these hold for us? You know, and, and it's that synthesis skill set. And that can be facilitated for people where, you know, and I do this as a facilitator myself is how do we bring together people? They read all these pieces and they're and they're like going, wow, this is really amazing. But my comment to them is, what's it saying to you? What are the implications to what you're doing? What's the implications to the business overall? What's the implications to society? Let's start dealing with those. So we're not arguing yeah. with each other. We're arguing with this stuff that we've collected. And, and we don't have to agree because that's part of the, that's part of the beauty of this, right? Is that it could go a number of different ways. But then what I say to people is, what are you going to start to watch what signals, we call them perking signals, are you going to start to watch in the environment that are going to signal you about if we're going direction A or direction B or direction F or direction X? Like, because you have to start to monitor that. All of these possibilities are going to happen in some fashion, right? And 
but they're going to come together in a new hole. And if you don't start monitoring some of these signals that are critical to your business and saying, you know, here's what's happening and having ongoing conversations about them, you won't be able to do some of these shorter term pivots. And there's going to be a lot of them that are needed, but you never want to lose sight of the longer term. Right. So, so very important. One of the other things that popped in my head, um, just thinking about kind of people and people in a workplace. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the importance again of having some time and focus set aside to think forward into the future. Use your strategic thinking, use some level of foresight to think about potential outcomes based on your current trajectories and what you expect to happen in the future or what the potential environment will look like, what your customers' needs are, and so forth. Um, one of the things that I've seen in organizations that can disrupt that um, that focus is what folks are actually rewarded for in, yes. in the work environment. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How can the reward structure in an organization kind of disrupt that, I guess, motivation or maybe um, that mindset towards really thinking forward into the future? Well, we're not rewarded on process. We're resort- rewarded on results. Mm-hmm. And we're rewarded on immediate results. And I think what you're talking about is, see, this is a process of strategic thinking. And for me, I I don't wait for permission to do this in an organization, even when I was a leader in healthcare. I just said to my group, we're going to do it. Um, and I'll give you an example of a group that did and how they got around some of this. It was very interesting. I was working with um, the media group of a very, very, very large insurance company. I mean, probably now in the uh, Fortune 250 or even the Fortune 100. They might be in the Fortune 100. And they wanted to do this foresight work. You know, let's do an environmental scan. They looked out 10 years. Let's do some scenario work. And I'm thinking to myself, this is really interesting. Like, when I got the request, why would a media group want to do this? And the head of the group said to me, oh, because we video all the C-suite leaders all the time and we're in one-on-one conversations with them. And we see them when they're trying to put together their presentations, like struggling to say what's going on and what's happening here. And so we see ourselves as resources. I thought, this is brilliant. Think about this. This is absolutely brilliant, right? And they said, we're not rewarded for this. Like the, like our our performance appraisal system doesn't reward us for this. But where we get rewarded is that when someone's sitting on a chair and we're videotaping them, and in between time, we're having conversations, we might raise particular topics, they might ask a question to nobody, just like, oh, I forgot to look that up. And we can say, oh, let us tell you what we learned when we did our process. And we have been able, that group that was able to influence the thinking of the C-suite leaders right? And it was not a formal thing that they did. And the leader of the group said, my job is to buffer my people from all the things in the organization that prevent them from doing this work. You know, and that even went so far as when they scheduled like the meetings with me and the pre-work and things, we didn't call it foresight work. We just called it something else. So that someone looked at their calendar, right? They wouldn't try to remove the meeting or say, what the heck is really going on? Now we informed their C-suite leader what was going on. And that person was very appreciative of the work and sat in on a lot of the meetings. But we we made it so that we weren't stuck along the way. But, you know, think about this like at a a program level, for example, or at a a project level. This is work that should be going on right up front. And because what you don't want to have happen 
And again, you're not going to be rewarded for this, right? So you're going to have to say this is part of us either doing our business case or part of us doing our, it, it, I don't know if people use charter documents, like they, all organizations call these things different, but whatever you're, whatever you're going to be doing up front to lay out the scope of your work is that what you don't want to have happen is something as simple as the following. I remember um, I used to, I taught for 10 years at UW-Milwaukee uh, in their project management certificate program. And I remember a man who was in one of my classes saying to me that he was working, um, there were two parts of an initiative that were going on. It was a manufacturing facility. They were bringing forward a new line for manufacturing. And what management said is, oh, if we're going to bring forward this new line and we're going to grow our business, we should probably house it in a different building. Okay. And he said, what happened is that when the when both of these projects came to fruition and they went to move the manufacturing line to the new facility, it didn't fit. I mean, it's as simple as that. Like you didn't like how, how did you not align? These two things internally, right? That's from a systems perspective. But then even more so, even more so was when you finished these two initiatives under a larger program, had the world changed? So if it took you three years to do this, just for sake of an example, the world that you're putting this into now, has that future world changed? Think about this with companies and, and their strategies. There are some innovations that some companies had on their books that they've probably been working on one or two or three years that don't fit post-COVID. And then there are some organizations that people tell me about, and I can't name them, who saw this as an opportunity to go, yes, you know that strategy that we thought would work over here? The future just got accelerated. And since the world's eyes aren't on us as a for-profit business and our stock price, everybody's like, you know, busy with other things. Let's take the next couple of months and ramp that up. So when we get to whatever the next normal is and the next normal and the next normal, we're actually ready to go. Now, we haven't seen those things come out yet, but I guarantee you in the next few months we will. You know, but they are organizations who have a different mindset around what you're talking about in terms of what are we rewarding, right? We reward innovation, we reward strategic thinking, but those who don't, which most don't, if you look at um, job descriptions, if you look at performance appraisals, you don't see strategic thinking in them. Yet, if you look at what is the most needed skill that business leaders talk about, strategic thinking will always be in the top 10. So there's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. I, I had like waves about focusing on job descriptions. I find it fascinating. Because companies will seem to acknowledge the things that they're real that are realistic, but tend to go back on kind of legacy job descriptions that have been around for some time and kind of recycle those, and then you know suddenly realize maybe this isn't exactly what I was looking for, or maybe I'm looking for a person that doesn't actually exist in the real world, and wondering why they're having a hard time finding that person. Yeah, well, I think there's another piece to this though that just dawned on me as you were talking. Hiring more and more data scientists and more and more data analytics and more and more data engineering staff is the opposite of what I'm talking about. So it's not just that the performance systems are the challenge right now. It's that the data folk are taking us down the wrong path because they're not schooled in strategic thinking and they're schooled in evidence and in the immediate and in the past 
And until we can get them, and that's where some of my efforts have been recently, I actually did find a guy. He moved from the UK to Australia recently, and he actually knows strategic thinking. That's a rarity. I mean, I don't know how to make that happen. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> but that's part of the challenge. It's the systems that we're creating, you know, all of these new fiefdoms, so to speak, that aren't schooled and why strategic thinking is necessary. Right. And the thing that is cool about strategic thinking is that it really stands the test of time. It does evolve, but the insights in relation to how you apply strategic thinking are relatively stable. Yes. And if you think about the skills in relation to specialists, technical specialists that people are looking for and tend to hire, those specialized skills will become obsolete the next couple of years. And so then you're looking at um, needing to rehire, needing to reskill, upskill, and those kind of things. And so it's an interesting thing to, to hear companies talk about, you know, what kind of employee do we need? You know, what do we call them? Do we call them a T-shaped employee? Do we call them? But it doesn't really matter what you call them. <laughs> what matters is that they meet the needs of your business today and in the future. And if you ignore that future, it will be at your peril. Well, I think let's take it to the level of the individual to you and me. And I'll use myself as an example here. So in 2015, 2016, I said to myself, what type of work do I want to be doing after age 70? Because I know that I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. My dad, who's going to be 88 this year, is still working in his own business. Um, my, my siblings are probably all going to retire, but that's not me. I'm, I'm going to continue to do work. And I thought, well, what sort of people do we value who are over the age of 70? You know, even in the U.S. military, we make them retire you know, um, at like age 50, 52, we might keep them a little bit longer than that. But, 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 you know, we don't value age. And I thought to myself, well, maybe, maybe higher education, maybe higher ed would be the place to go. Because where is, where are years and years of experience and wisdom actually valued? And it's within the education system. And, and I like higher ed. Um, I mean, I could go into like teaching at the, at the grade school level, middle school, high school, but, but higher ed has an attraction to me. And so I, I called up a girlfriend of mine and I said, you know, you're one of those people who went back to school to get her PhD in her 50s. And I don't want to go back for a PhD. I probably should have gotten it early on. I mean, um, that would have been nice. Instead, I have a former husband who got one um, while we were married. <laughs> I always tell him that should be my degree. We're still friends. <laughs> But um, in any case, I said, where could I go as someone with two master's degrees to teach in higher education? And she said, well, it's your lucky day because at the university that I'm at, we are going to take our industrial and organizational psychology program and we're going to put it online. And I think you would be a great fit because I have a master's in counseling psychology and an MBA. And I think that you would be able to marry those worlds together. And so that chair of that particular area, after I talked with him, said, yes, and I, here's the first course I'd like you to teach. And um, if we roll ahead to today, right now, I teach one course every trimester, and there are three different courses. I actually teach um, a, a graduate course on strategic thinking, not because I said that that should be done, it's because I had a, one of my students came to me wanting an elective, and it turned out those were all the topics, and she made it happen. Um, but in any case... You know, so I, I was looking out a lot of years. Um, I'm 62 today. So I was looking at a lot of years and looking at my future. Now, one could say today, oh, my gosh, look at what COVID's done to you. Um, higher education is dying. It is. It's been dying for quite some time. 
and you know more and more small colleges are going to close mm -hmm. or there's going to be mergers but well, guess what everything went online everything went online so i was perfectly poised right my students I mean, I had to ease up a little bit, you know, because everybody's life was in chaos. And, you know, th if they were taking more than one class that those folks had to figure out how to teach online. But I've been teaching online for a lot of years. And um, but I haven't lost sight to your point that I still think eight to 10 years out that that will still be where I want to be. I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, collapsing in the industry but people still want to learn. Now, what is the new university of the future going to look like? I don't know. I did a LinkedIn live show on that um, a couple of weeks ago uh, with some different ideas uh, from uh, my guests. But it, it, I don't think it's going to go away because we still need to learn. It's just going to be in new and different ways. And now we know it's all going to be online, most likely, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think that, so even for those of you who are listening, I would have you step back and say, put yourself 10 years into the future. And even if just for personal reasons, what's that world going to look like? And if you're part of a family unit, how old will everyone be? Where are you all going to be living? What's that unit going to look like? What do you want to be doing? What do you think will be valued? You know, and, and then where are your... I mean, I, I, for lack of a better word, your passions, I think more about legacy because to me, legacy is forever and ever passions change over time but how do you how do you prepare yourself for that future world now now today because i'm going to tell you something your employer is not going to do it not going to do it and so you have to take the initiative to say here are the 10 steps i need to take because you can backcast i can backcast from 10 years in the future to today and say based on that backcasting how do I close that gap? And what are the steps I need to take so that I can create this new reality for myself? So independent of what happens to whatever organization I'm in, I'm still surviving and thriving. Yeah. And I love that kind of weaved in the one of the themes that I try to weave in usually as, as well is that that point that people should take their personal agency and create their future rather than waiting for other people to do that for them, whether that be in their career, their personal lives or even in relation to technology and our experience as people. If you have something you're passionate about, you want to follow, you have something that's important to you, it's up to you to start today to make that thing happen. So good thing to remind folks of. Thank you for that. And I have another question for you, Lori. What is that? What makes you optimistic about the future? I believe that people are inherently good people. And that people, when allowed to make the choice will do what's right for everyone and that's what keeps me going i i believe in a world of abundance um i believe that we will be taken care of if we choose to take care of others um and and that's a that might seem a bit esoteric to people because it kind of leans toward more like the spiritual bent but that's kind of where from an energy perspective where i live my life because you know, when, when you do work like I do, which is always on the bleeding edge, people don't want it for years and years and years. You slog for years before like someone goes, oh, you actually do that? Or or as a, as a for instance, I was doing a keynote last week, Sunday to um, uh, several hundred folks in learning and development. And they're like, oh, you 
you've actually written books in business storytelling and there are books in business storytelling that we could read. I'm like, are you serious? That was like in my brain. <laughs> Where have you all been the last 20 years? <laughs> Not just about me, but about the field as it's, you know, on its own. Like, wow, there's books, there's knowledge, there's research out there. Yeah, you know, all that stuff exists. But I, I, I do believe that as a human kind, that we are inherently resilient. We're inherently creative. We inherently want to do right by each other. We inherently want to care for one another. And we see this happening now. My, my skepticism at night when I go to bed, because I'm an eternal optimist in the morning. So you're catching me about midday now, right? I've been through like several phone calls already. <laughs> my, I think the challenge is maintaining that when the situation is kind of moved on. Because we tend to do this when there are crises and then that level of heightened consciousness goes away. But it is my hope and it is my belief that we have, that that heightened consciousness will stay heightened for people. And that as people, for example, let's say that um, you are one of 10 people you know who is unemployed right now. It is truly my hope that when one or two of you in the group gets employment, that you will work your hardest to find a way to employ the rest. I mean, that's how I think this plays out at a very localized level um, where we, you know, and, and I talk to people, I'm very blessed. I talk to people all over the world um, about these sorts of things because everybody is struggling right now. But, but we almost have like this implied commitment that, you know, as things continue to change and shift and as things begin to open up for one person or another, we will involve the other. And I think that's the beauty. That's what I have optimism about is that that will continue um, and I will forever. Yeah, that's that's an absolutely beautiful thought. It's almost so beautiful. I hate to ask the next question. What makes you concerned about the future? <sighs> what makes me concerned? Um, well, I think it goes back to something I said earlier within organizations, and that is that we will somehow think that we can continue to forecast off of data that has no meaning anymore, um, which will cause us to make a whole bunch of wrong decisions, a slew of wrong decisions. But the challenge is we probably won't see the results of those for five to 10 years. And so we may already be gone. And, and, that, and that bothers me because it'll be the leaders who are gone, but the employees who will still be there who will suffer severely from that. Because I always tell people when a decision is made inside of an enterprise, I don't care what size it is, that decision impacts you about 10 years later, maybe seven to 10 year range. So um, that's the first thing that concerns me, that I want to wake up all of the data scientists, data analytics, chief data officers in the world and say, wake up, folks. Everything you've been putting your money into isn't going to help us going forward. And I know that that's a very harsh thing to say in the analytics community, that we need to shift from the data to shift to the decision-making processes. Let's hone how we help people to make decisions because they're not going to be perfect. They never have been perfect. And, 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 and even more so now, as we think about like what is, what is the current data telling us a little bit about what we can project, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to think differently about this. So that I think to me is, that's my that's one of my concerns for the future. The second concern that I have is the um, disintegration of a global economy. 
I know that that might sound weird, but I just had someone, and I haven't read it yet, put a group text message together inside of LinkedIn to read an article from a very well-known and well-regarded group that is starting to talk about this, that they actually want it to fracture. That bothers me immensely. And But it almost all has to happen. And here's the challenge we have is the supply chains have been disrupted. And so if your supply chains were worldwide, you are in one world of hurt right now. But the other, um, I have one other concern, if it's okay to state it. This is a new one. There's a series of events called Humanity Rising. It's sponsored by Ubiquity University and a number of other organizations around the world. There's several hundred speakers who are going to speak about, like, what's the world going to look like post-COVID? And when I was talking with the founder of Ubiquity University yesterday, and he said to me, like, what's the topic you want to speak about? I just finished a phone call with a colleague in Scotland, and he had said to me that he and his wife were talking about a subject, and what did I think about it? And the subject was, he said, you know how you've been describing how immensely challenging it is for you and for your colleagues? And he goes, and I'm finding this too, because he was saying how he needed to shut down his business in order to go internal. He had to make this very tough choice. And he said, it's almost as though COVID has put a layer on top of trust. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's almost like the fourth wall. And I said, oh, the fourth wall at the theater that an actor never breaks. He said, well, yes. I said, well, you know, I, I go to a lot of theater in New York and in London. And once in a while, an actor will wink at the audience or make a little giggle or something. And the audience knows they've broken that fourth wall. And he was telling me about the, a WWE uh, wrestler who recently has won. It's, it's someone who, who lives in Scotland. And the, the guy has just like one that they did it without an audience. You know, um, the Federation did this huge competition and this guy finally won. And, and how he went up to the uh, camera person and he had tears in his eyes. He was starting to cry. And he pointed at those of us, you and I, who were watching. And he said, this is for you. He broke the fourth wall. And I had this epiphany as he was talking. I said, so what you're saying is, Trust is a lot harder to build. There's something about, it's not like I can just reach out to you and you will want to engage in conversation. I actually have to go through several more layers. Now, I don't know how I'm going to talk about this, but it dawned on me yesterday. It's like, well, you know, the, the masks we put on our faces prevent people from seeing most of our face. So they can't pick up on all the nonverbals. They can't see when I'm smiling unless they know to look at the nuances in my eyes. Um, they, they might not even be able to hear me as clearly as they could before. All these things that we're having to put in, to, in the name of protecting people is going to disintegrate trust. And that, I don't know what we're going to do about. I have some of my own ideas, but I would love to hear from other people as well. It's like, what do we do about this? How do we how do we forge relationships? Because that's all we got right now. All we got are our relationships with each other. And, and, and if we're going, if that's going to be fractured in some way, because trust becomes harder to build, because we're isolated and we can't talk and Zoom isn't the same as being in person and everything else, then what are we going to do? How do we come out of that? Because I don't, I don't know if I see a world in the future, at least in the scenarios that I'm looking at, I mean, not unless you've got like 20 years, where we can go right now unmasked. 
I mean, unless you want to, but I choose not to because I'm choosing to protect other people from me. You know, to me, it's about what I'm choosing to do in the world, um, not what you're choosing to do. So it, I think that becomes a dilemma because we can't, we can't see. I even thought to myself, I mean, if you want to take this into another realm, um, I thought, how do I do dating in the future? I'm single. Like, how do you, how do you know? I want to know, Rebecca, tell me. Lori, we talked about this. We don't predict the future. How am I going to date? How am I supposed, what am I supposed to do? Like, am I supposed to have like six feet apart, you know? <laughs> it's a valid question. <laughs> no, I'm just talking about the next step. I'm not even talking about the step after next, you know? <laughs> I mean, but it's it's about this trust issue. How do you, how do you build, you know, relationships? Like I have a girlfriend who, she just decided she's on Match.com and there were three guys and she wanted to meet them. I said, how did you do that? Because we went to a, we went to a city park. I said, did you have a mask on? I mean, think about it. You know, how do you even, like, I can't give you a hug. I can't even express my emotion towards you initially in the relationship. I can't touch you. I have to ask permission. Everything now becomes permission-based. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't like that before. So the more I think about this trust issue, the more serious I think it is. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about that too, you think about not only just, you know, how do we continue to generate trust or are we diminishing a level of trust that we can usually establish through in-person contact, but also there's this extra layer that you're talking about, about like asking for permission to get too close to somebody. And we didn't have to do that before. So there's an added layer of complexity in our interactions with people in person that didn't exist before. And it's hard to predict or even just project what that will do to us as people, because it's not something that we ever really thought very critically about. So I think you're starting a very important conversation about how this will disrupt the quality of our relationships. It's something that I think a lot about in relation to kind of the theme of my podcast, but also because I've always had that level of concern about just the level of, of human connection and how technology disrupts human connection. And we've already seen that. Um, now we're looking forward as, you know, technology not being the only disruptor uh, now a global pandemic as well. Interesting things to think about. So, Lori, thank you for starting that very important conversation. Oh, thank you for your feedback. I really appreciate it. You bet. Well, Lori, this has been a phenomenal conversation, as always. You've been a joy to have on. Uh, folks, I'm going to put all of Lori's information out in the episode notes. Reach out. She can help you with tremendous amount of problems within business, but she's also a fabulous individual. So Lori, thank you so much for joining me. Well, and thank you for the opportunity to come and share some perspectives. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Lori is an energizing force who challenges people and organizations to build their story beyond the present, guiding them to define the step after next so that they can shape the next normal. She reminds us that the data we hold is only as good as the decisions we're able to make, and that remaining too focused on the present puts us at risk for missing the opportunities of the future. While Lori has been at this for over 30 years, her work not only remains relevant, but becomes more critical. If a global pandemic has taught us anything, we can expect that large disruptions will continue to occur and that we will need to adjust to prepare for what lies ahead. Over the last few months, I've heard others refer to this time as unforeseen, that we could not have known this would happen. 
while we would not have predicted the timing or the scope, the potential for a global pandemic has been foreseen for years. There are scientists that have dedicated their careers to preparing for this scenario, as well as other scenarios that we could encounter in the future. So, what about the other potential futures we may encounter? Are we prepared to navigate to the next normal and beyond? Are we equipped to adjust to technological advancements like Neuralink, to rising sea levels, to future political or social unrest, and many others? Are you thinking about the trends of the future? Anticipating what your customers might need based on data-driven projections? Are you deciding not only what you need to do to adjust to today, but what you need to do to shape a better future? There is no better time than now. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Lori Silverman and her amazing work, go to business-storytelling.com. That's business-storytelling.com. You can also reach out to Lori by emailing Lori at business-storytelling.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.